We want to get right into this tonight. We're studying once again verses 11 through 14, which is one of the more surprising passages in the New Testament. There's one commentator who called this uh, particular passage tense and dramatic. And that's because we have two of the leading apostles of Christ in conflict with one another. Now, those of you that are Baptist, just about everybody in here, I guess, is a Baptist, you know that churches are no strangers to controversy. Amen. And uh, as, as Baptists, we, we have a lot, some differences of doctrine between us, and some of those doctrines cause churches to fall out of fellowship with one another. Uh, some of them are important doctrines that are divided over, and some of them, unfortunately, are preferential issues that cause churches to fall out with each other. Uh, there are large, if, if you don't know history of Baptists and you don't know what makes up everybody that calls themselves Baptists, well, there's all kinds of different, different uh, groups that are, that are Baptist or use the name. And there are some very large independent Baptist fellowships that refuse to fellowship with other independent Baptist fellowships because uh, they may differ on a point of doctrine. And uh, sometimes, as I said a, a moment ago, uh, the differences aren't essential doctrines, and yet they still cause people to fall out of fellowship with one another. And that just kind of shows you that even as independent Baptists that claim no uh, denominational organization, yet our practice sometimes does not match with our principles. So it's not uncommon in Christianity to find contentions in leadership. In fact, we find one here in this text. Uh, two of the most prominent people in the history of the church are, are in a conflict with one another. And uh, sometimes people fall out over pride and prominence. One leader of one group wants to be the big one and some other leader wants to be the big one. He wants to be over everybody and and that causes them to fall out. But we don't have that kind of an issue here. We're not talking about uh, a matter of primacy, but here it's a matter of unity of fellowship within the body of Christ. And this was a matter that was resolved, and these men were not struggling for their personal power, but they wanted to be right and to submit to the authority of Jesus Christ. Now, if you'll look in our text verses tonight, Galatians chapter 2 and verse number 11 but when Peter was come to Antioch, I withstood him to the face because he was to be blamed. For before that certain came from James, he did eat with the Gentiles. But when they were come, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing them which were of the circumcision. And the other Jews dissembled likewise with him, insomuch that Barnabas also was carried away with their dissimulation." But when I saw that they walked not uprightly according to the truth of the gospel, I said unto Peter before them all, If thou, being a Jew, livest after the manner of Gentiles, and not as do the Jews, why compellest thou the Gentiles to live as do the Jews? Now the underlying theme in this section is still the defense of Paul's apostleship. Uh, this is in the early years of the Christian faith, and I would think that if you or I were writing a history of the church and we were concerned about what people would think about church history and whether there were problems with it, that one thing we would do is perhaps try to hide incidents like this. We wouldn't want to include anything about the problems that leadership has. And so we might want to, to appear that leaders of churches are infallible. They never make any mistakes and there are never any arguments among them. 
Well, this is one of the things really that makes the Bible such a unique book because we're given the truth with all the warts of human frailty. Uh, We actually do need to see ourselves in pages of Scripture because we as humans fail. And the Bible records these sorts of examples for our learning. Uh, When our behavior is not right and when our doctrine is not right, we need to be told about that, and we need to be told how to correct it. And then when we are corrected, we need to learn to take that correction in the right way and be glad for it. So we might not think that it would be such a wise thing to include the mistakes that are made by leaders. And we might even think, well, here is an event that should not have happened. But you remember the scripture does say that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to his purpose. And here's an incident that God took and turned around for good. He said, well, where is the good in this? Well, we start with this part of it, that it helped Paul to show a prime example of his calling to be an apostle. Because when he rebuked Peter, that showed that he wasn't second or third or in, uh, uh, in the pecking order in the line for leadership. Uh, it shows that Paul had some authority as an apostle, so he didn't come behind Peter in any way. And it also teaches that leaders in the church are not infallible that everything that we do has to be tried by the word of God and there is no Christian that should blindly follow any leader. And that's one of the real problems that I see uh, in, in our fundamental Baptist churches a lot of times, that there are pastors that take full authority for a church and they want to be followed blindly. They demand to be followed in that way. And if they're not, if someone raises a question or uh, if they have something that they want to say about it that's seen as disloyalty and so what happens many times is they consider that to be disrespect and that becomes grounds for a reprimand and even further than that many times grounds for exclusion from the church let me just shorten up this part of the message very quickly follow the pastor as he follows christ and nowhere else it's proper to ask questions it's proper to ask for explanations But when you do, don't assume that you're right and the pastor is wrong. He may be right. You just have to use the Bible. Whether you're right or he's right, use the Bible to decide the matter. Now, going back here to our text in Galatians, in in the first part of the message, which we began last week, we talked about the dietary customs of the Jews. And that previous sermon was background information for a problem of fellowship between Jewish and Gentile Christians. See, the Jews had these dietary laws that were peculiar to them and that kept them from eating some of the same foods that Gentiles ate. And they also had laws that had been put in place that said that they were not to eat with Gentiles at all because they supposed that Gentiles were defiled and so it was sinful to eat with them. Some of the dietary laws that they followed came out of the Old Testament. But the vast majority of things that they practiced did not were not found in the Old Testament. For instance, the Old Testament has no prohibition for Jews eating with Gentiles. These kinds of things were added on by their oral traditions, the things that scribes and rabbis over the years had passed down, and those oral traditions had become a part of their culture. And the disciples, the apostles of Christ, grew up in that same culture. And so they they were influenced by all of of these additions that were made to the law. Well, Jesus, of course, came to undo all of that. He 
came to satisfy the ceremonial laws that we do find in the Old Testament. And he also came to reverse these, these uh, misapplications of the law. He came to be the fulfillment and he came to show people when those laws are not correct and when tradition conflicts with, with uh, the truth of God's word, you're always supposed to follow God's word. And that happens to be the subject on Sunday morning in the book of Matthew from chapter 15, tradition versus the truth. And so what had happened in Jewish life is the ceremonies that they were practicing, the ones that didn't come out of the Old Testament, uh, and ones actually some of the ones that did, things that were supposed to be pictures of truth, actually became the truth itself. And so they thought that following all of these different kinds of dietary laws and so forth is what made them right with God. Now we move on there for tonight to discuss the second part of this and that is the conduct of Peter and it was the conduct of Peter that caused the problem Paul said he was to be blamed what did Peter do well verse 12 says that he separated himself from Gentile converts in Antioch and did not eat with them and so we notice first then that there was a separation of fellowship Uh, for some reason Peter decided to travel from Jerusalem to Antioch And as I mentioned before, that's a journey of about 300 miles. And perhaps he went there because he wanted to check and see how Gentile churches were doing in that area. Maybe he wanted to go see Paul's ministry firsthand and to see how Paul had been so successful in winning people to Christ. And when he arrived there, he had no trouble at all. Peter had no trouble at all fellowshipping with Gentile believers, accepting that there was no difference between him and them. They were saved. He was saved. There's no problem fellowshipping with them. So at first, he didn't separate from them. His, his Jewish background didn't hinder him to make him think that he was defiled and if he ate with Gentiles. And that's really the reaction that we would expect from Peter. In Acts chapter 10... God had given him that vision of the uh, great sheet that was let down from heaven and all the animals that were in that sheet. And God's message to Peter was for him to kill and to eat those animals that he considered to be unclean. Well, there are various purposes for that vision that God gave him. But one of those is that God intended to teach Peter that Gentiles were not defiled just because they were Gentiles. And so they weren't unfit for salvation as the Jews had previously believed. And so if they could be saved, then that means that their souls are on equal footing with the Jews. Well, Peter knew that. He got that message. It's the same doctrine that Paul so often taught, that we are all Christians by faith in Christ. Uh, Gentile Christians are in Christ. The Jewish Christians are in Christ. And so Christ becomes the basis of fellowship. So we expect that when he went to Antioch that he would make no difference between himself and them. So he ate with them. And by the grace of God, Peter was able to overcome those Jewish prejudices and he wasn't bothered by those. Now let me say this as we uh, try to make a practical application of this part of the text to us that our fellowship in Christ is based on the truths that are found in God's word. And so it's wrong for members of the church to be divided from one another so that there are some members of the church that you don't fellowship and some that you will because if Christ is the basis for our fellowship, 
then the only reason that you would have not to fellowship with them would be some serious sin that's taken place in their life, and so you separate on that basis. Well, if that's the case, then you would be at fault for separating from them even in that if you did not take this problem to the leadership and explain that something needed to be done about it. And I think we find this to be the case with Paul, that he went and he rebuked Peter openly. He brought the matter to the attention of the entire church. And that doesn't mean that what you should do is stand up in a church service and point to someone and say, well, I know that that person has sinned, so put a scarlet letter on them and insist that they repent of their sin. You ought not to do that, but at least you ought to do this. This is reasonable, that if there is a matter between you and another church member and it excludes you from having fellowship with them, then it has to be something serious enough for the whole church to decide. If it's not then you are the guilty party because you've separated from another believer without a sufficient cause. Now, I'm not saying that there aren't causes to separate fellowship from another member of the church, but I'm not going to explore those passages tonight. Just be aware that unity and fellowship of the faith, fellowship in the church, these are very important subjects in Scripture. So I never like to hear that there's some member that's sitting on this side of the church that doesn't want to fellowship with somebody on that side of the church and this aisle is a true divider between Christians so they just won't have anything to do with one another. And we don't want to see that in the church because what it does, it will destroy a church from within. So what's the cause of Peter's separation? Well, we see that there was separation because of fear. Verse 12, for before that certain came from James, he did eat with the Gentiles. But when they were come, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing them which were of the circumcision. Now, it's very important for us to understand that Peter did not separate from Gentiles because suddenly he has a change in doctrine. Sometimes this passage is referred to as the controversy between Peter and Paul. And uh, I, I might sometimes slip into that uh, usage of words and call it a controversy, but the Bible does not call it a controversy. It doesn't say that there's any difference here in doctrine. Uh, there's no hot, contentious debate that's gone through here. We, do, we don't see any lasting animosity between Paul and Peter over this. In fact, we find Peter at later in Second in Peter speaking of Paul in endearing terms where he calls him there our beloved brother Paul. And there's a good lesson in that. And that is when someone pulls you aside to correct your behavior, don't be angry about it. When the pastor preaches against your sin, don't be angry about it. And that's because I don't have any other purpose in preaching about any sin other than to have you walk a straight path in order order that you might be blessed by God. Uh, The pastor wants you to see or wants you to grow in that relationship that you have with God. And I know that there are some times when I'm preaching and I may preach on a sin and somebody out there says, well, he's picking on me. He knows, he knows, I know he knows, and so he's picking on me. And so instead of uh, of looking at that in the right way, the person says, why don't you preach on somebody else's sin? I'm not doing anything worse than what they're doing. But is that really what matters? Do you give an account to God for somebody else's sin? Whose sins are you responsible for? Well, you're responsible for your own. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 14, Who art thou that judgest another man's servant? To his own master he standeth or falleth, yea, he shall be holden up, for God is able to make him to stand. 
Now, just to give you the context of that verse, it relates to the same subject that we're looking at here in Galatians. Paul is discussing Christian liberty and whether things like dietary customs and feast days and those types of things are make or break issues among Christians. And so he argues that it is the Lord that sanctifies us. And so who are you to say that one Christian is accepted by God and another is not? You don't judge another man's servant because he answers to his master, not to you. And so the idea is that that other person must answer for himself. He answers to the Lord for his sins, and you're not responsible for him. You are responsible for you, for your own actions, and you are responsible to answer to your Lord. That's your responsibility. So you never want to use the excuse, well, why doesn't the pastor preach on their sin instead of my sin? Think about that. How would that help you? How, how does it help you to correct your problem if I'm always calling the other kettle black? That's not going to help you at all. What you need to do is when you hear preaching, you take it and you apply it to your sin. And don't excuse your sin, correct your sins. So the issue here is that it's not a doctrinal issue. Now, behind it, Certainly it's a doctrinal issue, but in Peter's mind, he has no change in his mind about the doctrine at all. But what's happened here is that his practice has gone wrong. So there were Jews that came from Antioch from Jerusalem, and Peter became fearful of the reaction they would have when they saw him eating with Gentile Christians. Now apparently there's a whole lot that's in this that doesn't meet the eye because or there's more here than meets the eye because the, the there's a great deal of difference among bible expositors about the reason for paul or peter's fear some tried to explain away that fear couching it in in lesser terms they can't see how that peter could so quickly turn from uh what he had said in the council at jerusalem and the speech that he made he pretty much condemned the actions that he now takes so they say, well, Peter's not going to make such a quick change of mind and do something like this. But when we look at the life of Peter, don't we see that he's prone to these kinds of rash actions? I mean, wasn't it Peter who said, Lord, I'll never deny you? And in just a short amount of time, a few minutes later, he denied the Lord three times. And wasn't it Peter who stepped out of the boat with boldness, and started to walk to Jesus in a moment of fear. He was caught and he began to sink. And didn't the Apostle Paul say that can happen to anyone? In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, he talked about how God had done many miracles through Moses and the children of Israel saw those miracles that were done. They even walked through the Red Sea with Moses. And when they got to the other side, it didn't take just just a very short amount of time until they were... They were bad-mouthing Moses until they were wicked in their hearts, until they had forgotten all about what God had done. And so Paul followed that up by saying, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. So here the fallibility of man shows through. The sinful nature was still in those apostles just like it is in us. There's no one that is infallible but God. Now, some, some would have you to think otherwise, that Peter was not infallible, or that, he, or that he was, yes, not infallible. But in fact, we find here that Peter did give in to his fear. Well, of course, it begs the question, then, what was he afraid of? And this is where the differences of opinion come in. John Brown, the 19th century commentator, thought that 
Peter was afraid because when the Jews came from Jerusalem, they would see what Peter did and they would become so disgusted with it that they would say, well, let's abandon Christianity altogether. Let's just go back to being Jews. And so they would renounce their Christianity. Now, that opinion, I think, gives Peter a little bit more credit than he deserves because Peter would turn out to be somewhat of a hero in that instance because he separated from Gentiles in order to protect these other people that they not, might not turn from their Christianity. Well, I don't think that we see that here. I think it's more correct that Peter was afraid of losing the respect of the Jews that were in Jerusalem. There were many of them that were still following the old Jewish customs and Peter would lose his influence and perhaps he might even be persecuted when he got back to Jerusalem. So at best, I think we can say Peter had a selfish moment that overtook him and his thoughts were not what is pleasing to God, but what is pleasing to man. And we find ourselves in that position many times. We do convenient things because we're afraid of what people might think of us. We, we want to maintain our standing and we just don't want people to think bad of us and, and they don't, we don't want our religion to shine through and so we don't think about and what I do, is what I do pleasing to God. Now I want you to notice something that I think is an interesting point here and that is what is the identity of these people that came from Jerusalem? Verse 12 says they came from James and that means that they came out of the Jerusalem church but did they actually come from James or were they sent by James? Do we, do we assume that they had James' authority? And there are actually a few ways that we could look at this. We could say, yes, they were from James. They did have the authority of the Jerusalem church. And then we might add to that that when they came, they never had any intention at all of, of uh, confronting Peter, that they were in agreement with the former decision of the Jewish council. And so... Uh, they wouldn't have been upset at all when they got there and Peter was just mistaken he thought that they would be upset I don't agree with that one because I don't think that gives Peter enough credit I think Peter very well knew who these people were Peter knew what they thought and if they were esteemed people that came from Jerusalem then certainly he would know what their intentions were and then we could say well yes they did come from James but James himself was having trouble of turning loose of Jewish customs and that he had only gone halfway towards giving those things up and so these men that came from Jerusalem are a reflection of his partiality towards the dietary laws that they wanted to see still enforced and that opinion I think doesn't give James enough credit so who, who of us is going, going to say that James, who was a pillar of the church, did not understand this? And so he, he sent these people to Antioch to interfere and to mess up a church that was doing just fine, that they were happy worshiping together with each other and a church in good harmony. And yet there are very good Bible expositors that take that side of the argument. They say James sent them and he's just reminding the Jews in Antioch that what they need to do is to stick with the old Jewish customs and just keep on doing, practicing what they'd always practice. Well, that doesn't seem to be the James that we read about in Scripture. That doesn't seem to be the James that wrote the book of James, and yet this is one and the same. He, he's the same person, the leader of the Jerusalem church, the same one who wrote the book of James. Now, I want to quote to you from one of the leading commentators on this, uh, and you can see his opinion. This is Philip Schaff. He said, It would seem from this passage that soon after the council, 
James sent some esteemed brethren of his congregation to Antioch, not for the purpose of imposing the yoke of ceremonialism upon Gentile Christians, for this would have been inconsistent with his speech, but for the purpose of reminding the Jewish Christians of their duty and recommending them to continue the observance of the divinely appointed and time-honored customs of their fathers, which were by no means overthrown by the compromise measure adopted at the council. It is unnecessary, therefore, to charge him with inconsistency. All we can say is that he stopped halfway and never ventured so far as Paul or even as Peter, who broke through the ceremonial restrictions of their native religion, confining his labors to Jerusalem and the Jews. James regarded it as his mission to adhere as closely as possible to the old dispensation in hope of bringing over the nation as a whole to the Christian faith. Now, in my opinion, that would be an underhanded method of evangelism, to say the least. Don't teach them that Christ has done away with the ceremonial law. Don't don't teach them that the veil in the temple was torn completely in in two. Don't give them the complete picture of what the work of Christ on the cross accomplished. Don't tell them all of those things. Get them in. Don't tell them everything. Bring them in. Give them a part of the truth and then work on them to straighten them out. That's not Jesus' method. It wasn't Paul's method. I don't think it was Peter's, and I don't think it was James either. So there's a third way that we can take it, and I think this is the correct one, and that is these men are one and the same with the Judaizers. They came from James, but that doesn't mean that James sent them. It just means that they came out of the church that James presided over, That's the church in Jerusalem. And so they show up on the scene, and they appear just as they always appear. appear. They come under false pretenses. They claim to be sent by James, but they're Judaizers, and they're just up to their old tactics. Now, you notice there in the last part of verse 12, it says, Peter feared them which were of the circumcision. And I think that means more than they were just Jews. It means they were of the circumcision party a faction in the church that wanted to bring circumcision into uh, the Christian doctrine as a means of justification. And now they've added also this prohibition of eating with Gentiles. Now, do you see how that grows? When you add one thing to grace and faith, that you end up adding more things. You add circumcision, then you end up adding the observance of dietary laws. You add circumcision, then you end up with an addition of baptism. You have to be baptized to be saved. You add baptism, then you add on the necessity of taking communion to be saved. You add on the communion, then next comes the necessity of penance in order to be saved. And then when you get that far, you've replaced the gospel of grace with the gospel of works, and now you've grown into a full-blown system of rules and regulations for salvation. And how did it start? It started with adding one Just one extra requirement. And do you think God didn't know that? Paul had a razor-sharp mind, and God used that, and he recognized where this would lead. So you have Paul here writing to the Galatians and warning them, this stuff has already been hashed out. The Antioch church has already been through this, and upon the authority of his apostleship, he writes to them and says, cease and desist from any other doctrine than justification by faith alone. Well, it's somewhat amazing and shocking that Peter would be caught up in this. I mean, how, how did someone like Peter get, get fooled by the Judaizers? Well, at this point, it 
he seems to have come down to the level of the Gentile churches that have been tossed around by different winds of doctrine. And now we have to ask the question again, well, what was that about the primacy of Peter? What about that? Does Paul's authority, his apostolic authority, start to shine a little bit brighter now? So there, there are lessons to be learned here. We can't get to all of them tonight. We don't have enough time to even talk about the next one that I want to, to get to, and that's Paul's reprimand of Peter and what form that took. See what Peter could have done? He could have sat at the table and never got up. He could have watched those Judaizers come and go, and irrespective of the way that they felt about it, he could have just stayed there, stuck to his guns, and just fellowship with the Gentiles as he should, and that would have taught them a valuable lesson. But instead, he caved. He was afraid of what they would think. And how many times in the workplace have you been afraid of what people think? Have you ever been shamed by your religion? Uh, Have your beliefs ever stopped you from showing that you're truly a Christian? No, I'll be honest with you. I, I think all of us have a little bit of Peter in us. We have the capability of being Peter that was crucified on a cross upside down. We have the capability of being Peter that said with boldness to the very same people that crucified Jesus, we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. We can be the Peter that would echo the sentiments of Paul that I can do all things through Christ that strengtheneth me. We can be the Peter that stands up for our faith. Or we can be the Peter that when it got tough, he denied Christ. We can be the Peter that sank because he took his eyes off of Jesus. We, we can be the Peter that got up from the table and disfellowshipped with others because he was afraid to stand up for his faith. And I think that all of us as Christians have a little bit of both Peters in us. Now, we don't have all the first Peter that always speaks with boldness and always does what's right. That's why we have church services. That's why we have explanations of things like this and talk to you about things like this. None of us is 100% right. None of us is 100% on fire. None of us is 100% dedicated all of the time. And why aren't we? Because we have the same problem as Peter. We're not infallible. We have a sinful nature. But then on the other side of that, there isn't any Christian that's that 100% Peter of all the time. No Christian is going to be continually absent of a testimony of faith. And there's no Christian that will perpetually stay in a frozen state of disobedience to God. Now, we've got a sinful nature, true, but we've also got a new nature that's been implanted in regeneration. The nature, a divine nature, implanted a new nature, implanted in regeneration. And so... We're not going to stay in disobedience to God. We are the redeemed of God. And so there must be times when we are going to show that we are indeed Christians. So our Christian lives are a pattern of these ups and downs and ups and downs. And our purpose here is to make the spiritual highs, let you sustain the spiritual highs just a little bit longer and make the spiritual lows lifted just a little bit higher. That's our purpose to keep preaching the word of God until we come to a consistency in our faith where it's not so much of this and this, but it's even following Christ in the right path that we ought to go. So we want to walk close to the Savior. And where I would want to leave you with in this lesson tonight is 
which Peter are you right now? And you may may be able to start to gauge yourself from what I said at the beginning. You can start now by determining who you are by just looking around the room and saying, well, we need a larger crowd here maybe for this. You got, I think most of you are probably friends. I may find out differently when we get outside the building. But um, you think about people that are here on Sunday mornings, for instance. Is there somebody in the church that you won't fellowship with? You have disfellowshipped dis- yourself from them? And you have to think about it. Is that reason that you've done it really serious enough that it ranks up there with sins that people ought to be put out of the church for? And that's where it has to be. That's where it has to be. And and if it's not, you should still be sitting at the table with them. That's what God expects from us. But then maybe it's something else. Maybe maybe, uh, others at work don't really know where you stand. I mean, you get along with them because you join in in the water cooler talk and you act and you sound just like they act. You go to the same parties, you have the same fellowship. Nobody would even guess that you really know the Lord. So we need to evaluate our lives. We need to actually determine which Peter showed up today. And I hope it's the faithful Peter. And I hope it's that way every day. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the time we spent together tonight. Lord, we just uh, rejoice over your word and those who come to hear uh, the explanations of the text and to learn the lessons that we can learn from this. Uh, Father, we do pray that you would help us to be consistent in our Christian lives, consistent followers, and never be afraid to stand up for our faith and make it known where we stand. Uh, We can send a mixed message that causes people to turn away from the gospel or not even to know that there's a gospel that's being preached. Lord, we pray that you'd help us not to be that kind of church member, but help us every day to live as we should, to be a great testimony before those that we live with in the world every day. And may our lives point them to Jesus Christ. Thank you for our study tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.